don't want to minimize the importance of what we have before us today. Uh, Jesus has been sharing what has been called the greatest message that has been ever preached by the greatest person who has ever lived. And it's not been an easy message. It is basically this. I am calling you out of sin and self through repentance and faith to embrace me with your life and follow me in loving obedience. And along this journey, it's been 18 weeks now we've been going through this message. Along this journey, there have been some, some easier things to grasp, and there have been some more challenging things to grasp. And uh, the people of Jesus' day had never heard Somebody speak like Jesus spoke. At the end of chapter 7, right after Jesus finishes his message, notice what it says. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, his sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Uh, the word astonished literally means to be struck with a blow. They were dumbfounded. They, 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 were, they were numb. There was a sense where they, they were just surprised and, and astonished and even stricken with panic is what that word can mean. So Jesus' words were not easy for them to hear. They were very challenging because he spoke to them as one who had authority. Jesus spoke with such clarity into the very center of the being of the people present. They had never heard stuff like this before. He spoke with the power of God from the heart of God into the hearts of the people present that day. And what he did was he laid them bare before God. They had never heard anybody speak like this before. Well, it's not only back in Jesus' day that his words are meant to carry their weight and force. But the Holy Spirit has preserved his words for us today. And his words are meant to continue to have the same profundity, the same power, the same ability to, to strike us as they did back then. And what we're going to look at today is a haymaker from Jesus. He's pulling no punches, and his goal is to ultimately knock us off our sense of poise and self-confidence and to lay us out. Today, Matthew chapter 7, notice these words from Jesus. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but rather the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The people that day were shaken to their core. This warning from Jesus was designed to cause the people of his day to honestly assess what is it that I am counting on to get me into the presence of God? What is it that I have put my confidence in that's going to get me there? What is the assurance that I truly know God? 
And Jesus shakes them to their core. His words are meant to have the same impact for us today. The worst thing you can do right now, the worst thing you can do right now is say this, but Pastor Bill, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's the Christ. I believe he died for my sins. I've been baptized. I try to do some good things. I try to give what I can. I try to do what I can. Pastor Bill, obviously Jesus can't be talking to me because I'm saved and I'm good to go. Just before you rest in that understanding, notice the people Jesus spoke of. And many will say to me in that day, what? They acknowledged his lordship in their lives. But not only that, they actually went on to prophesy in his name, to literally cast out demons in his name, and to do many mighty works, which were miracles in his name. How many have cast out demons here? How many worked miracles in Jesus' name? They had great assurance. I'm good to go. But I don't want you to miss what Jesus said. I never knew you. You see, it's very possible for us to say all the right things, even to do many amazing, profound things, and yet to be absolutely lost forever. Those words will ring in the ears of these people for the rest of eternity. I never knew you. I never knew you. Please do not make the mistake this morning of merely assuming you're good to go. They did, and they were wrong. They were deceived. So today, as we draw into the Word of God, go with an open heart and mind and ask God honestly, am I truly one of yours? You see, the warnings of Scripture of which this is are given to test us. They are given for us to honestly be shaken by them and to evaluate what, what it is, what is the veracity of the trust or the assurance that I have that I know God. How many of you would be happy to fly in a plane that's never been tested? How many of you want to jump on off, a bungee, off a bridge on a bungee cord that's never been tested? How many of you want to jump out of a plane with a parachute that's never been tested? Yeah, I don't think we want to do that. You know, there's something about jeopardizing our lives with something that's untested that just doesn't make any sense to us. But how much more does it make sense to, to test the veracity of our eternity? And the reality of our faith. Because that's forever. It's not just your physical life. It's your eternal life we're talking about right now. So, my prayer for you is exactly this. That Jesus born would knock you out. Boom! That we will be shaken to the very foundations of our being this morning. And if what you trust in is valid, it will only serve to strengthen it. But if what you trust in isn't valid, I hope it collapses under the weight of your deception.
and that today, perhaps for the very first time, you'll see what it really means to know the living God. Today, we're going to consider together simply this. Beware of false assurance. Beware of false assurance. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to do a quick exposition of the verse in context, these verses in context, and then I want to turn to the reality of what it really means to know the living God. So if you would bow your heads with me, uh, let's take a second to pray together. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for the uh, power of your words. Jesus, you were always challenging and testing people's assurance. You were never simply coming along, patting people on the back, trying to give them assurance if they lacked it. And I pray today that we would receive your words as being words of love, words of concern, words that are designed to ultimately cast us upon yourself. Jesus, speak again as you spoke 2,000 years ago to our lives. Spirit of God, do a work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, Father, amen. Amen. Okay, okay. Let's begin by putting these words in context so that we can truly appreciate exactly what Jesus is saying. These words fit the context of what we were talking about last week, the, the whole issue of false teachers or false prophets. And so they come off the reality that these false teachers will provide alternative teachings as to how somebody is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather than entering by the narrow gate and following along the hard way which leads to life, they will give us an easier door of entrance and a simpler path to God. But what they're doing is they're teaching lies. And many are going to believe those lies because we want to believe those lies. Lies. You see, there is nothing naturally in us that desires to do what Jesus is saying. Repent, repentance and faith that leads to life, a life of obedience. None of us wants that. None of us wants to die to ourselves. None of us wants to give up our lives and our plans to follow somebody else's plan for our lives. We are all by nature selfish and rebellious. We all want autonomy, but Jesus' narrow gate and hard way are onerous because of that. We don't want that. We want eternal life, but we don't want what he says it takes to get that gift. But the problem is, it is the only gate and path to life. This week, Tim Keller, uh, pastor, Presbyterian pastor up in New York City, tweeted me. Uh, my favorite form of social media is Twitter. And uh, so this past week, he, he sent me uh, this tweet. And he said this, Christianity doesn't give you what you want. It's more like an explosion that destroys everything you have to make way for something new. Let me say that one more time. Because I think, we think, God's there to give us what we want. When in reality, God's going to blow up our lives to put in place what he wants. Christianity does not give you what you want. It is more like an explosion that's designed to destroy everything you had to make way for something new. To make way for something radically new. To make way for something that is completely radically new. So, those who teach otherwise 
and their adherents, those people who believe what they have to say, if their lies are not exposed in this life as being bad fruit, they will be exposed at the great and terrible day of judgment when it is too late. Here we go. Let's unpack these words from Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. The uh, double use of the word Lord is intended to make it emphatic. They acknowledge the lordship of Christ in their profession. They're very clear. He's Lord. He's Lord. And you know, the Bible does say things like this. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 and verse 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, Paul wrote these words. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not saying calling him Lord or having a confession of faith that he is Lord is a bad thing. But what he is saying is this. It in and of itself is insufficient. It's insufficient. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven to be with me and my Father forever in paradise. But the one who does, this is a present active participle, it has the idea of continuous action, doing, or a habitual practice. But the one who is habitually doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus is doing here is he is drawing a very sharp contrast between what one says, Lord, Lord, and what one does. It's insufficient merely to say Jesus is Lord. You need to back that up with a life and lifestyle that is consistent with that truth. So merely confession is not enough. But it needs to be backed up with life. But I want you to notice something startling. What Jesus just said is exactly what these people say they did. Notice, this is now the confession of people uh, talking about the confidence and the assurance that they had that Jesus should accept them. On that day, it is the great day of judgment. It is beyond any hope for change. Everything has already happened. Many will say to me, how many? How many? Many's not few. Many's not some. Many is most. That's what the word many means. In that day, most will say to me, Lord, Lord. Here's the confession. Lord, Lord. Very clear. Very straightforward. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Dude, that is a powerful resume. Look, Jesus, Jesus, all that we did in your name. Look, Jesus, all that we, we, we said. So he says, you, can, you don't only need to say it, but you need to do it. Well, they said it, and they did it. Aren't you supposed to be in like Flynn? Isn't that the magic words? Jesus is Lord, and I do some of this cool stuff, and I'm good, right? Apparently not. 
Because Jesus now goes on to say this, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, it's not that Jesus was unaware of their existence, but rather Jesus refuses to acknowledge their claim, namely that they're his. And then he says this, depart from me. This is utter and total rejection. And here's the point. You workers of, what's the word? But they said all the right things. They even did some miraculous things. But Jesus makes it clear, no, no, no. Just because you said the right things, just because you did some amazing things, doesn't necessarily mean you're right with me. Jesus looked beyond their words, and Jesus looked beyond their resume and all the things they did, and Jesus saw their hearts. And what he saw was lawlessness. The word means to be in rebellion against God's revealed truth. They were lawless. That is because they had never come into a relationship with the living God which would radically transform their hearts and make them new creatures in Christ. You can say the right things. You can do the right things and be damned forever is Jesus' point. What are you basing the assurance that you're good with God? What is the basis of your confidence that you're going to be with him forever? Is it what you say? Is it what you do? Or has he radically ripped open your chest, done heart surgery, and given you a new heart? Because only those who receive a new heart are his. Again, it is possible to say the right words, Lord, Lord, even to do some amazing spiritual feats and to have had some very emotional experiences and still be condemned for all eternity apart from all that is good and God. Hear me, please. Hear me, please. This is key. This is key. Salvation, eternal life, is all about a relationship with the living God that leads to a transformed heart. Apart from that, you do not belong to him. You see, I can say I know God, but the question is, does God know you? That's the point here. You can say, yeah, I'm, I'm good with God, but is God good with you? That's the question here. Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. The word know is gnosko. It has the idea of an intimate relationship, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. Say that with me. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. Say it again. It's all about the heart. It's all about my heart. It's all about my heart. It's all about my heart. The question is one of love. The question is one of love. Say it with me. The question is one of love. Do you love God more than you love yourself? That's the key factor. That's what Jesus holds out. That's what the Bible teaches. The question is one of affections. And if you do not love God, 
more than you love yourself, you have no basis for assurance that you're his. None. 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 It's all about the heart. That's what Jesus has been teaching us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He goes on to say this. It's all about your heart. You have heard that it was said that those of old, that you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Yeah, we know that. I haven't murdered anybody. But I'm I'm saying to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable of the judgment. It's about your heart. It's not just whether or not you committed the act of murder. It's about whether or not you're angry with people. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not about the outward actions. It's not merely about doing good. It is about a transformed heart. And Jesus has been exposing this heart throughout his teachings. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not uh, swear falsely, but you shall perform what the Lord has sworn to you have sworn to the Lord. And again, here it's not about manipulating circumstances so that it always turns out to our own benefit. It's not about that. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. If you love autonomy and the things and the ways of this world, you're in trouble. You have no basis for assurance. But if you love God, even to the point of sacrificing your own self, that's the basis of assurance that the Bible gives us. It is all about the heart and the need for a brand new heart. It's not about trying harder. It's not about giving more. It's not about serving more. It is all about our heart. This is what Jesus was uh, talking about, actually, uh, way back into the Older Testament. This has always been the case. This has always been the case. Notice with me. Uh, So Jesus says, it's all about the heart, and that heart reveals itself through your secret life that you carry on with God the Father through giving and prayer and fasting, which will show up in the fact that you are loyal to him. You you have made him master, not your money. It will show up that you trust him, and you have a life of uh, faith and not fear, and it will show up in the fact that you are building his kingdom and putting other people first for his sake. So it's all about the heart. And what this reveals is the the need for a new heart, the need for a new heart. And that's exactly what the uh, prophet Ezekiel said long, long before Jesus came on the, gra- on the picture. Notice what he says. And I will give them one what? And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a, a flesh, that they may want to walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them that they shall be my people and I will be their God. This has always been God's criteria for being right with him. Go way back to Gen- uh, go way, way back to the beginning of the law. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be right with God. It has always been about love. It has always been about love. A love that displaces self and puts God first. A love that displaces self and puts others ahead of us. This is what it means to have a relationship with God who is love. 
This is the basis of assurance that I know him. Jesus uh, went on to say about the need for a transformed heart. There needs to be a new heart in us. That's why he said this to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to have a new heart. You've got to have a new heart. You can't just try harder. You can't just do more. Paul put it like this. And we were dead, stony, hard, rebellious heart in our trespasses and our sins. But he went on to say this. But God, when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's given us a new heart. Peter put it this way. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. You can say all the right words. You can do all the right things. But if it's not emanating from a heart that is in love with God and desiring to please him above all, you have no grounds for being assured that you will stand in the presence of God someday. This is what Jesus is saying. And we stagger under the reality of these words. And as we should. You see, if your foundation is secure and sure in this truth, then it's going to affirm you. But if it isn't, it's meant to take you to your knees so that you will cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need a new heart. I need a new heart. It's all about the heart and when we come to the Father by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought back from the dead. We are born again. God gives us a new heart, one that is responsive and feeling and loving. It is the new heart that comes with a new life. And this new life comes with new longings and desires. A growing love for God and for others that is unmistakable. This is what it means to be right with God. I'll let somebody else say it. Maybe a different words will help make it a little more clear. Uh, Francis Chan put it this way. That's so good. One thing I wanted I, that's on the forefront of my mind is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, he changes everything, okay? Like our, our hearts of, of stone become flesh. It's this miracle. We go from death to life. We go from being deaf to the word of God, to hearing it and wanting it and longing for it. Ezekiel talks about that day when God's actually gonna put the spirit in us and we'll actually want his commands. We'll actually desire it. Um, and and, and so, so whether, however we spread the gospel, okay? I, no, I shouldn't say that. If, if some feel it's too simplistic or whatever, in some ways it might not matter because if the Holy Spirit actually indwells that person, when he hears truth later on, he'll accept it, he'll want it sure. because we're his sheep now, we listen to his voice. And the problem is we, we had a lot of people make a decision. I make a lot of decisions. You know, I decided to run every day this year. Mm -hmm. I've ran five times, okay? It's, it's October. I, it's October. No, I, start, I ran four miles on January 1st, and I haven't run four miles since. So we make decisions. We make decisions. We make vows for better or for worse. What does that mean? 
okay? And we make decisions to follow Jesus. What does that even mean? Well, for the person who has been changed by the Holy Spirit, that's the seal of our salvation. I can't walk away from Jesus. Man, you, you try to talk me out of this. I know him, I love him. You're not gonna stop me. Do I need people to walk me down that path? And yes, I do. Here's the problem is we have all these people that have made a decision and we love them and in good conscience, we don't wanna lose any of them. Well, some of them didn't really make the true decision. They're, the Holy Spirit did this repentance and we preach a gospel where, you know, Acts 2, we say repent, be baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so many have preached a gospel that doesn't include repentance or baptism or the Holy Spirit, yeah. you know? And so you're, you're trying to force people to move down this level of growth without that miracle of the Holy Spirit changed me. And I actually desire that growth. I was actually born again, so I crave this milk. I mean, you, you, we've seen that miracle of when your baby's born and it's just like, <laughs> you know, they just, they just know there's something that happens and there is something that happens happens when someone is born again, not a little thing. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit of God now. That is a tremendous power. Your heart that was stoned, you who were powerless against sin, now you can put it to death. That's intense. And we don't talk about this power and this new desire and how we're a slave to what is right. And I, I fear that we're trying to make people go through the sanctification process when they haven't really understood the change and if that change has taken place in their life. But because we don't want to lose those people, we'll make a system that they can get through even without the Holy Spirit and even get in the church leadership and everything else. So that's the only thing I would add is, a, is just a, a revisiting of, man, what does the Holy Spirit do as Tozer said? Because I don't think anyone has ever had the Holy Spirit enter them and they didn't know. That's right. Um, it was a, it was, that's, it's a yeah. big big change and so sometimes we say well you know i think i see a little bit of fruit and it's like gosh I, that's that's hard to imagine if yeah. you're a temple of the spirit now and you weren't before like when peter it's all about the heart and when we come to the Father by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought back from the dead by being born again, where God gives us a new heart, responsive and feeling and loving. And with this new heart comes a new life. And with this new life comes new longings and desires that are just there because there's this new life. And it is a life of growing love for God in others that is unmistakable. You can't manufacture it. You can't pretend. It's just real. Well, Pastor Bill, how do I know if I have had this change of heart? How do I know if I am truly in a good place with God? How can I know that? Well, you are so fortunate because we have an entire book of the Bible dedicated to answer that one question. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John this morning. I want you to know where it's located because your homework's going to be to read this book through on your knees before God. 
But 1 John was written for this purpose. I write these things, John said. These things are the whole book. This is chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things. This is his purpose statement. To you who believe, to those of you who claim to know God, to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I have written what I have written to you in this book, 1 John, so that you might know. That word know is found 40 times in five chapters. 40 times. He wants us to know. The word to know has the idea of, of, of an intuitive understanding or an experiential understanding. I want you to know. The word uh, confidence up with God is said four times in this book, and the idea of being reassured before God is found once in this book. This whole book was given and written for the fact for people to assess, where do I stand with God? If there is new life, if there is a new heart, it will come forward with certain new desires and longings that will simply be there. They'll simply be true because this new life has been birthed in you. What does it look like? What does it look like? Well, let's consider what 1 John says. I'm going to read just a few of these, and when we run out of time, we're done. But you're not. This is the most important thing you'll ever consider in your life. I'm going to give you the tool to go before God and to ask God, where am I at, Lord, with you? He's the one to ask. Don't ask me. Don't count on yourself. That's where self-deception comes in. We're good at that. Go before God and let him speak to you. Here we go. There will be in our lives, if we have been given this new heart through new birth, brought back from the dead, there will be in our lives a growing attitude of obedience towards God's word. Notice uh, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to walk through a few of these so you can see how God wants us to understand them. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. <laughs> really? But if anyone does sin, of course... Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation, the suitable sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, please hear it. And by this we know, we have assurance, confidence, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There is this innate desire, this innate longing within our breast, and it's hard to describe, but it's there, to want to please the Father. Not to win his favor, but because I have his favor. I love him. I want to please him. Now, the word to keep his commandments was actually used by mariners in Jesus' day, and the idea was they would chart a course by keeping the stars. And so by keeping the stars would determine the direction that they would sail. And so what he is saying here is, you're not going to be perfect. That's just out of the question. We're never going to be perfect. Amen? But the point is this. Are you charting your life according to the course of God's revealed word and will? That should just be there. That's a given. It's a hunger that we have. We want this in our lives. Why? Because we love him. Okay, it goes on to say this. Um, whosoever says, I know him, oh yeah, I got confidence, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. He who does not chart his, chart his life's course according to his word is lying. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, charts your life according to his word, in him truly the love of God is being perfected. It's about love. 
And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him should also walk in the same way that Jesus walked. It is the consistency between our hunger and our lives, our affections, and lining up with God's word that gives us assurance that we know him. Apart from that, you don't have assurance. In fact, the Bible says you're a liar. This is why John wrote his book, to give us understanding so that we might know where we're at with him. And so it goes on to say this, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has uh, been born of God. The idea is we cannot habitually, without conscience, willfully sin. By this, it is evident, it says in verse 10, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I didn't say that. The Bible says that for our benefit so that we can honestly assess where we are in relationship to God. He goes on to say this in, in verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 3. And, and it says this, for this, is, uh, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It doesn't mean they're always easy, but it means because I love God, I'm willing. Let's do this, God. I can't do this. Help me, God, but I want to go here. It's not burdensome because we love him. It's about love. Say it with me. It's all about the heart. It's all about love. That's the key. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We're getting there. And then he goes on to say this at the end of chapter 5 with these words. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. That's what it says. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Jesus put it this way. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't have time for this next little video clip, so I'm going to move beyond it. But what I want to do is this. I want to give you some warnings from the Bible. Warnings are tests for us to say, oh my gosh, where am I in light of these? Do not say, I'm saved, it doesn't apply to me. That is the worst thing you could ever do. All the warnings of Scripture apply. The question is, what are you doing about them? So here we go. Warning. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Eternally. That's what it means. But if by the Spirit you put death to death the deeds of the body, you will eternally. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You say, Pastor Bill, what about grace? Whatever happened to grace? Grace that God's Son would put on flesh. Grace that God's Son would live a perfect life. Grace that He would die in my place. Grace that I would be given His righteousness instead of my own filthiness. It's all grace. But do not mistake grace for carte blanche to live however you want. It doesn't mean that. Paul said this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. He said, Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? He said, God forbid, ume in the Greek construction is the most negative form in the Greek you can make. Absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin live any longer therein? That's his point. Grace doesn't just forgive us. Grace changes us. 
Grace transforms us. Paul told uh, uh, Titus in Titus chapter 2 these words. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, training us, teaching us. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's grace. That's grace. Now, the works of the flesh are very clear. Immorality, impurity, which, by the way, is the word pornea, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger? Really? You mean if I'm habitually angry without any conscience? Selfishness? Oh, my gosh, he put the word selfishness in there. Dissensions, haughty spirit, pride, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and notice, and the like. He, he couldn't make a list long enough. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will never enter the kingdom of God. But I believe. But has your heart been transformed? It's not that you don't sin. We all sin. It's not that I'm sinless, but I desire to sin less because I love the Father. It's a heart issue. It is about the heart. It's not merely saying the right things or doing the right things. It is about the heart that wants to do these things because I love the Father. That's what the Bible teaches. Listen, this, this verse here. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and now, okay, I want to be his. Okay, this is what you're supposed to do. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord, what? Yeah, run from sin. This is the truth. This is the truth. If there has been a heart change, you're going to have this growing attitude where you want to be obedient towards God's word. Um, next, you're going to have this growing affection for the people of God. Notice what he says. We know that we have passed from death to life. First uh, John 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love, that we are now willing to lay down our lives for the brothers. And practically speaking, if anyone has this world's good and sees their brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in deed, but in deed in, or love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Here we go. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and are assured in our hearts before him. That's assurance. That there's a transformed desire for those people who name the name of Jesus. I want to be here. I want to connect with them. I want to help them. I'm here because God so loved me. I am to love others. It's all about love. Love for God, love for others, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbors as yourself is what it was said back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's never changed. It has never changed. Those who truly know God love God ultimately more than themselves. Chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves is born from God and knows God. Chapter 5 verse 2, or 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ 
has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who has been born of him. My brothers and sisters, I love them. Why? Because they, we all have the same daddy. I love the family. I care deeply about this. And so Jesus put it this way. You will be my disciples. You are my disciples. The assurance that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It was these verses that drove a guy who was 21 years of age, suffering with agoraphobia, to get out of his panic mode and start to engage in the life of the church. Because I realize birds of a feather flock together. It is what we do by nature. The longing is to connect with the people of God. And so I was willing to get out of a bedroom where I had spent five years and almost committed suicide. When I finally met Jesus, I was willing to forsake that and to go to church for the very first time because this is what it means to be a believer. You connect naturally, longingly, with other people who know and love Jesus. If there is no longing for that, other than checking the box that I went to church, that's a bad place to be. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. Say that with me. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. And you know what? By your fruits, you are known. It will show up in your life. It just will. Warning, warning, warning. Again, the warnings in Scripture are given for us to assess our lives by. Not to say, oh, I'm saved, this so that doesn't apply to me. They went out from us, but they were not all of us. For if they had truly been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. People who willfully disconnect themselves from fellowship and can live lives apart from the local body of believers, they are in a bad place. They have no assurance that they're right with God if you can willfully go on without any conscience and be apart from the people of God. This is what the Bible says. Our assurance, our confidence comes from these truths. <sighs> All right. I'm done. Um, lastly, there is the assurance of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, more verses there. Jesus said, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. He will teach you all things. He will bear witness about me, and he will convict you. One of the major ministries of the Holy Spirit in my own life is a conviction that comes upon me when I sin willfully. And reminds me that that's not acceptable to the Father. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This new heart is from God. It's the Holy Spirit who makes it animate. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons who cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. There's this love for Daddy. Oh, Father, I love you. Jesus, thank you. Without a new heart and new desires and new longings that naturally want to feed on the Word, that naturally want to connect with the people of God, that naturally wants to uh, be led of the Spirit, there's no assurance that you're right with God. <laughs> Let's get beyond these guys. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's the issue. Not that we know God, but that God knows us. I have a plaque in my house. It's a takeoff on Jesus loves me, this I know. 
The plaque in my house says this, Jesus knows me, this I love. The question is, does he know you? He wants you to have the basis of assurance that you're truly his. But he is always pressing people to convince them otherwise, to convince them of their need of him. This is your assignment. Sometimes our lack of assurance is the very place the true faith grows. I want to ask you to go home today and get on your knees and read 1 John. And in reading 1 John, simply say this, Oh God, you know my heart. I don't always. As I read through this, let me know where I stand with you. And rather than bringing your laundry list of achievements, listen to the Spirit. And very likely, you're going to be on those knees and you're going to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will give you a new heart. And you will have a new life. And he will guide you along this path until you're guided home. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being brutally honest. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look at all that I have done. And you're going to say, I don't even know you. Depart from me. You who have this unconverted, lawless, rebellious heart. Father, I pray that the Spirit will take these words, bring them to bear on our lives, and that if our foundation is secure in Christ, that it will be reaffirmed. But if our foundation is laid on anything other than a love for the living God and Jesus Christ, his Son, and others, that that foundation will give way and that we might confess our sin and come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.